the explosive new film, Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost, exposes secrets behind the government's takedown of General Michael Flynn. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. He told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. They had to get rid of Flynn. Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to SalemNow.com. SalemNow.com. Welcome to the Georgine Rice Show podcast. This program was originally broadcast live on 93.9 KPDQ. We hope you enjoy the show. Well, good afternoon and welcome to the Tuesday edition of the Georgine Rice Show. Glad to have you with us. James Blend is producing. Clark Hilton is engineering today's program. Today we're going to talk with Randy Newman. His latest book is titled Unlikely Converts, Improbable Stories of Faith and What They Teach Us About evangelism. If you're looking for some encouragement, you'll find it in Unlikely Converts. We're also going to talk in the five o'clock hour with Roy Swart. He is with the Ambassadors Forum, a really remarkable group of individuals that are providing apologetics training. He's an engineer and a leader. And we're going to talk about the third annual Spotlights on You Apologetics Conference that's coming up Friday and Saturday, November 15th and 16th at Cedar Mill Bible Church on Northwest Cornell Road. We'll give you all the important details. You can also go to the website, Spotlights on You um, Conference, or rather, SpotlightsOnYou.com um, for more information uh, about that event coming up. He'll join us in the next hour of today's program. Well, today, of course, is Election Day. If you haven't already dropped your ballot in the mail at an appropriate time for it to arrive where it, uh, its final destination, where it needs to uh, be counted today, you can drop them off at locations at your county elections office. So make note of that. There are also, of course, contests taking place all around the country as well. But today is the day here in Oregon. Um, where you have a, an opportunity to weigh in on a number of issues, primarily all of them having to do with taxes. Taking a look at some of the day's headlines at a rally of, on friendly turf in Kentucky Monday night, President Trump urged what he called an angry majority of voters to send a powerful signal to Democrats in the world by handing the GOP a big victory, not only in Tuesday's gubernatorial races uh, there, but also in the pivotal upcoming statewide elections in Virginia, Mississippi and Louisiana. The result of the showtown, uh, showdown rather in Kentucky, as well as uh, Tuesday's gubernatorial race in Mississippi and state legislature races in Virginia and New Jersey could serve as a barometer this week on whether Trump still has the ability to rally Republicans at the voting booth amid Democrats' ongoing impeachment inquiry. Top Democrats have acknowledged that the president's influence helped the GOP sweep key House special elections in North Carolina in September with chance of USA at Monday night's rally. The president repeatedly sought to leverage his accomplishments in office, including energy independence and historically low unemployment rates, to boost Republican Kentucky Governor Matt Bevan. At one point, the president reminded the audience that Americans' uh, special forces had just provided the world's number one terrorist a one-way ticket to, well, Hades, in a colorful reference to the now-dead Islamic State leader Abu Bakr al-Baghdadi. And Iran's president announced uh, on Tuesday that Tehran will begin injecting uranium gas into 1,044 centrifuges, the latest step away from its 2015 nuclear deal with the world powers since the president withdrew from that accord over a year ago. The development is significant as the centrifuges uh, previously spun empty without gas injection under the landmark 2015 nuclear accord. It also increases pressure on European nations to remain in the accord, which at this point has all but collapsed. 
On Monday, during an event commemorating the 40th anniversary of revolutionaries seizing the U.S. Embassy in Tehran, Iran announced it was now operating 60 advanced centrifuges, uh, twice as many as allowed by the accord, and is experimenting with a prototype designed to be 50 times faster than what's allowed by the New Deal. At his uh, Kentucky rally, the president stood in front of throngs of attendees wearing Read the Transcript shirts, a reference to the White House readout of the president's July call with Ukrainian leader uh, that is at the center of the House Democrats' formal impeachment inquiry. On Monday, House Democrats leading the inquiry publicly released the first transcripts from their closed-door interviews, airing concerns from witnesses about the activities of President Trump's associates related to Ukraine. The panels released testimony from former U.S. ambassador to Ukraine, uh, Marie Ivanovich, and Michael McKinley, a former senior advisor to Secretary of State Mike Pompeo. Among revelations in the transcripts, Ivanovich testified that Ukraine Ukraine told her about Trump lawyer Rudy Giuliani's campaign to oust her. Ivanovich was pushed out of her job in May on Trump's orders. Republicans, in turn, complained that Democrats were conducting the proceedings in private and were selectively releasing transcripts. The president has urged Republicans to release their own transcripts. Of what? I'm not entirely clear. Social media posts banned. Video clips from The Godfather Part 2 banned. Transcripts from The Godfather Part 2 not banned. Those are just some of the unusual ground rules set by the Obama-appointed U.S. District Court Judge Amy Berman Jackson for the widely anticipated trial of former Trump confidant Roger Stone, which begins today. In Washington, Stone, a longtime Republican provocateur and part-time fashion critic, hmm, that's an interesting combination, is accused of lying about his efforts to obtain Russian-backed Hillary Clinton emails for political gain. His indictment in January was an offshoot of special counsel Robert Mueller's investigation, and Judge Jackson ruled that Stone's legal team would have access to most of the redacted materials in Mueller's report in order to prepare his defense. Stone is not charged with com- uh, of conspiring with WikiLeaks, the anti-secrecy website that published emails of Democrats during the 2016 campaign or with the Russian officers, Mueller says, hacked them. Instead, he's accused of lying about his interactions related to WikiLeaks release during probes by Congress and Mueller's team. Uh, The president, for his part, has said Stone has been unfairly targeted. Some critics considered Stone's arrest unusual and heavy-handed. It took place at the hands of highly armed police during a pre-dawn raid, and CNN cameras were in place. Huh. Well, the United States submitted a formal notification that it will withdraw from the Paris Climate Agreement, Secretary of State Mike Pompeo announced on Monday, a move that's been widely expected since the president announced his intention to do so back in 2017. The climate agreement, which went into force November 4th, 2016, committed countries that signed the measure to take certain voluntary steps to reduce greenhouse gas emissions. The accord banned countries from announcing their intent to withdraw in its first three years, meaning Monday was the first day the U.S. was allowed to submit its intent to leave the agreement since it went into force in 2016. The president has previously said that the Paris Climate Agreement harms the U.S. economy and would hurt American jobs if left to stand. And a Mexican cartel massacre of nine Americans, including six children from a Mormon offshoot, were murdered earlier today. We'll tell you more about that in just a a bit. And the U.S. has begun formal withdrawal from that uh, Paris uh, climate agreement because today was the first day you could legally do that. Elections in four states offer tests of the 2020 voter enthusiasm, particularly on the Republican side. 
And um, the uh, I won't even go there. Um, AOC has settled lawsuits after blocking um, critics on Twitter. Yet she continues to block prominent conservative women, according to The Washington Times. And The Washington Nationals, Kurt Suzuki, Ryan Zimmerman showed their support for the president during the World Series White House visit. And China is pressing Trump for more tariff rollbacks in phase one, the tariff deal or the trade deal. And the Dow hits records as a stock market rally extends into its fifth week. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. Back in a moment. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show podcast. It's aired on 93.9 KPDQ. We're back. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. 19 minutes after 4 o'clock is our time. Coming up later this hour, we'll talk with Randy Newman, author of Unlikely Converts, Improbable Stories of Faith and What They Teach Us About Evangelism. On this day in history, 1940, President Franklin Delano Roosevelt wins an unprecedented third term in office as he defeats Republican challenger uh, Wendell Wilkie. And on this day in 1935, Parker Brothers begins marketing the board game Monopoly. On this day in 1968, Republican Richard Nixon wins the presidency, defeating Democratic Vice President Hubert Humphrey and American Independent candidate George Wallace. On this day in history, 1974, Democrat Ella Grasso is elected governor of Connecticut, becoming the first woman to win a gubernatorial office without succeeding her husband. And on this day in 1994, former President Ronald Reagan discloses he has Alzheimer's disease. On this day in 2006, Saddam Hussein was convicted and sentenced by the Iraqi High Tribunal to hang for crimes against humanity. And finally, on this day in 2009, a shooting rampage at Fort Hood Army Post in Texas leaves 13 dead. Major Nadal Hassan, an army psychiatrist, would be convicted of murder and sentenced to death. Well, at least six children, three women living in a faith-based community of U.S. citizens in Mexico were shot to death on Monday in the northern part of the country. Six more children were wounded after their convoy came under fire during a brazen daylight ambush believed to have been carried out by gunmen affiliated with the cartels. Alfonso Durazo, Mexico's top security official, confirmed the six deaths, adding that six more children were wounded in the attack with five transferred to hospitals in Phoenix, Arizona. He had indicated that one child was still missing, although relatives later appeared to indicate that the girl, Mackenzie Langford, age nine, who had been grazed in the arm by a bullet and had gone for help only to get lost in the dark, was eventually found. All the victims are believed to be members of the extended LeBaron family who live in a religious community in uh, La Mora, northern Mexico, a decades-old settlement in Sonora, Uh, founded as part of an offshoot of the Mormon Church around 70 miles south of Douglas, Arizona. They said the group was attacked while traveling in a convoy of three SUVs. Durazo said the gunman may have mistaken the SUV convoy for rival gangs. That has since been disputed. Police first found a burned-out Chevy Tahoe with five people. About 11 miles up the mountainous dirt road, they found a Suburban with a dead woman and two dead children inside. Farther on, they found a second Suburban and about 15 yards away, the body of a woman. The victims were all dual Mexican U.S. citizens and were traveling back to the U.S. when they were ambushed, according to Utah's KUTV. Local media citing statements purportedly made by family member Julian LeBaron said that Durazo uh, informed him that three people had been detained in, in that attack against his family. Among those killed were Ronita Marie Miller, 30, and her four children, Howard, 12, Crystal, 10, eight-month-old twin babies, Titus and Tiana, 
Her burned-out, bullet-ridden SUV was reportedly found outside the town of Bavisp, uh, where the settlement is located. Also killed were Christine Marie Langford Johnson, 31, Donna Ray Langford, 43, and two of her children, Trevor and Rogan, ages 11 and 2, respectively. Several other children survived the attack, including Faith Johnson, Christina's seven-month-old daughter, who was found in her car seat, seemingly put on the floor by her mother, unharmed. Langford Jr. says that it's just huge. It's just absolutely unimaginable. This is the absolute worst nightmare for our entire existence in Mexico, and we never thought it was possible. Well, John LeBaron, another relative, posted on his Facebook page that his aunt and another woman were dead. He also posted that six of his aunt's children had been left abandoned but alive on a roadside. In a series of tweets uh, Tuesday morning, the president hit out at the monsters who perpetrated the act, writing a wonderful family and friends from Utah got caught between two vicious drug cartels who were shooting at each other, that's not yet proven, with the results being many great American people killed, including young people and some missing. If Mexico needs or requests help in cleaning out these monsters, the United States stands ready, willing, and able to get involved and do the job quickly and effectively. The great new president of Mexico has made this a big issue, but the cartels have become so large and powerful that you sometimes need an army to defeat an army. We added in a third tweet, this is the time for Mexico, with the help of the United States to wage war in caps on the drug cartels and wipe them off the face of the earth. We merely await a call from your great new president. Well, President uh, uh, Obrador refused that approach, saying it, uh, it at a Tuesday press conference, the worst thing you can have is a war. We declared war and it didn't work, he said, referring to the policies of the previous administration. This is not an option. Well, early reports indicate that The tragedy could have been a case of mistaken identity, but there was a run-in with the cartel 10 years ago when two members of the family opposed a local uh, drug trafficking group were kidnapped and murdered. Mexico's Federal Department of Security and Citizens Protection said security forces are reinforced with National Guard, Army, and state police in the area following the reports about disappearance and aggression against several people. The troops were searching for the missing community members believed to include 11 children or more. Meanwhile, the only way to fix problems at the southern border is to commit to working a working partnership with Mexico. So says the former U.S. ambassador to Mexico, Earl Anthony Wayne, on Tuesday, appearing on America's Newsroom with Bill Hemmer and Sandra Smith. He said the number of instances of criminal violence over past weeks is part of a problem that Mexico has been grappling with for a number of years, including when he was an ambassador and tried to find an effective strategy to counter it. Well, as the six children and three women living in the offshoot community from the Mormon Church of U.S. citizens in Mexico were shot to death and five children injured after their convoy uh, came under attack during a brazen daylight ambush uh, carried out by gunmen, uh, much talk as to what to do has been uh, occupying many in positions of authority. Those attacked were members of the LeBaron family, more than a dozen other members um, of Lamora, a decades-old settlement uh, in the uh, town there, uh, were missing after the attack on the convoy of the three SUVs, according to relatives. So the story is not yet uh, finished, as it's not clear whether or not those who are missing uh, have been found or identified. Meanwhile, former U.S. envoy to Ukraine, Kurt Volker, according to transcripts released today, pushed back on the claim that President Trump sought to withhold a meeting 
uh, with President um, Zelensky until Kiev committed to investigate allegations concerning the 2016 election, while also denying that Trump was seeking dirt on former Vice President Joe Biden. The deposition transcripts, though, also reflect officials' concerns about the involvement of Trump attorney Rudy Giuliani in seeking politically related investigations out of Ukraine. Further, they offer a variety of uh, accounts or varying accounts of whether a quid pro quo of some kind involving either a meeting or the release of U.S. military aid may have been presented. One of the most significant revelations from Tuesday's release is that EU Ambassador Gordon Sondland revised his prior testimony to say that he told a top Ukrainian official that the U.S. aid would likely not resume until the country issues a corruption statement, a revelation that was quickly hailed by Democrats of proof of the quid pro quo uh, that they have been alleging took place. Now, similar things were said under the former vice president. Uh, so it's not entirely clear how this might differ. But other sections presented a, a muddier picture in the transcript of his closed door deposition last month with lawmakers conducting the impeachment probe. Volker was asked if Trump withheld or delayed a meeting with Zelensky absent a pledge to probe concerns Ukraine had interfered with the 2016 presidential election. The answer to the question is no, if you want a yes or no answer. But the reason the answer is no is we did have difficulty scheduling a meeting, but there was no linkage like that. He said well, recently revealed uh, text messages showed Volkler appearing to link the investigations to a D.C. visit by Zelensky. The deposition transcript uh, seems to reflect Volker asserting the contrary. Sondland, too, testifying about a conversation he had with White House acting chief of staff Mike Mulvaney, said he didn't tell him the investigations were needed in order for there to be a White House visit. There was never they were, excuse me, never linked. That was only specifically brought into the the press statement for a brief period of time through Mr. Giuliani when we were negotiating a press statement. At another point in the transcript, though, Sondland said he eventually thought there might be a link between the White House visit and aid to the Ukrainian government that were being held up. House Democrats established the impeachment inquiry to investigate the circumstances surrounding the president's phone call with Zelensky in July, in which he urged him to look into allegations surrounding the 2016 election and the Biden family activity in the country. Democrats have alleged that a quid pro quo took place with the president leveraging military aid until the Ukrainians investigated the claims. And on Monday, House Democrats, led by Intelligence Committee Chairman Adam Schiff, released two uh, transcripts from their closed-door impeachment hearings. The one I just referenced was today. These on Monday, the transcripts were from testimonies given by the former ambassador, um, Maria Yovanovitch, and former top aide to the Secretary of State Mike Pompeo, Michael McKinley. Neither of the witnesses had direct knowledge of the phone call between the president presidents of the U.S. and the Ukraine, which was the alleged impetus behind the whistleblower complaint. And the expectation is transcripts will continue to be uh, trotted out, um, uh, not all, but in part, uh, so that the Democrats can make their case toward uh, impeachment. The Republicans will continue to rail against that process, believing that this should be a bipartisan effort and all the transcripts should be made available in their entirety in order for they and the American people to understand what was actually said in context. So it continues. Up next, we're going to talk with Randy Newman, author of Unlikely Converts and Probable Stories of Faith and what they tell us about evangelism. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show podcast. It's aired on 93.9 KPDQ. We're back. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. 
Well, most Christians have people in their lives who they are sure, for one reason or another, will never come to faith. You could probably think of a name or two yourself. Whether they're too committed to their sin, too angry with God, too quick to shut down any mention of the saving grace of Jesus, these long shots don't seem, well, worth approaching. It'd just be a waste of time. But some of the most unlikely converts have the strongest faith stories, and they can be a source of incredible encouragement for Christians who are trying to evangelize those around them. Well, my next guest, Randy Newman knows firsthand the discomfort that comes with sharing the gospel. He's been tongue-tied and timid, just like the rest of us. But the truth is, we don't need to sound like the brilliant, charismatic, legendary evangelist. In fact, I'm reminded of the disciples who, uh, about whom uh, the, the leaders marvel because aren't these unlearned men, but they were with Jesus. Well, in his book, he shares surprising conversation, or rather conversion stories, straight from those who took the long way around to Christianity. He considers current cultural trends that make evangelism more difficult today. Then, with his upbeat style, he offers practical, actual words to proclaim the gospel and provides a plan of action. In the end, his book, titled Unlikely Converts, encourages us to remember that while the Great Commission requires us to speak, it does not require perfection Thank God for that. Well, Randy Newman has served in campus ministry for over 30 years. He now teaches at several evangelical seminaries and ministries in a variety of churches. He is currently a senior teaching fellow at the C.S. Lewis Institute in Washington, D.C., and uh, he joins us today to talk about his latest book, Unlikely Converts, Improbable Stories of Faith and What They Teach Us About Evangelism. Randy Newman, thank you so much for joining us. Opportunity. I, you know, in the in the context of our conversation today, I've been talking these last uh, week or or so about the conversion stories of Kanye West and Lamar Odom, two names that are familiar to many of us, and we scratch our heads and wonder how how did this happen? When did this happen? Um, your book is really a, a series of stories about how unlikely people came to faith in Christ that really shouldn't surprise us, but does give us a greater insight into how that process um, occurs and um, how people through through a period of time and a number of circumstances finally come to faith. Yeah, and I um, uh, it was really wonderful for me to interview uh, almost 50 or maybe mm-hmm. more than 50 people. And and just hearing their stories were were so surprising and delightful that I thought, man, I gotta I, I gotta let people hear about this because it it's so very easy I think to get discouraged in evangelism because it seems to take so long and people seem so hardened and yet when you hear stories of people who were just as far away as some of the people that we know and that they came to faith, it's just, it's tremendously encouraging. Yeah, absolutely. Now, in the prologue, you tell the story of uh, a young man named Lawrence, and just kind of walk us through how he came to faith in Christ. He was one of those people who was very unlikely, and at times had expressed what could be interpreted as hostility. Can you tell us a little bit of Lawrence's story? Sure. Um, yeah, I, I actually, I begin the book with his story, and then I end the book with uh, the rest of the story. But uh he was one of these guys on the college campus who was very skeptical and just thought Christians were idiots. And he got invited to some event on campus where some smart person was going to be answering any questions you might have had about God. So he decided to go to embarrass the speaker. That was his motivation and to make fun of the Christians. And what he told me was, I remember that I was really mean, but they were really nice. And uh, he tried to ask an embarrassing question that didn't really throw the, 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 the speaker off at all. 
Uh, in fact, the speaker didn't really didn't really exactly answer his question. The guy um, Lawrence asked, uh, "Well, what about aliens? You know, if if there are aliens, doesn't that mess up your whole Christian thing? I mean, how does God take care of people on other planets?" And the speaker was just really kind and gentle and said, "You know, I'm sorry, I I, I don't really know much about aliens. I I've never really studied them and." And I don't know how God would take care of other planets. I just I know how he takes care of our planet, and that's revealed in the Bible. And I think you ought to come to this Bible study we're going to start next week. <laughs> and and th- then he started going week after week after week and went through the Gospel of Mark. And the scriptures brought him to a place of belief and, 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 and uh, conviction of his sin and understanding of the Gospel. Um, but when he asked questions of his Bible study leader... Um, the Bible study leader gave him thoughtful, respectful answers to the questions. Uh, so one of, one of the big ones that tripped him up was that whole story about Jesus and the pigs. You know, Jesus cast the demons out of this man and cast him into the pigs. And Lawrence told me, he says, when I read that story, I thought, what's up with that? Why does Jesus have something against pigs? And, you know, all these <laughs> pigs end up dead in the story. And um, so I said, did you ask the Bible study leader that question? And he said, uh, yeah. And he gave me a pretty thoughtful answer. It wasn't all that brilliant or anything, but, you know, the guy said, well, there's probably a very big difference between being a person and being a pig, and we probably shouldn't mess around with demons. And when, I, when he told me that, I said, so did that satisfy you? He said, yeah, but here's what you need to know. I had always been told that I asked too many questions. I'm, I'm always asking too many questions. And people told me, oh, just stop asking your questions. Just ask Jesus into your heart as Lord and Savior, and he'll take care of all your questions. And he said, I, I thought, well, that's really stupid. And if that's what your religion is about, then it's a stupid religion. So when this guy gave me a pretty decent answer and a respectful answer, he thought, well, I, I guess there probably are good answers to all of my questions. And that was the pivot point that, that brought him to faith. You write, there's much more to his story, a beautiful and gradual one that included a lot more Bible studies, a major conference for Christian students, attending a good church where people did know how to handle the Bible, and a lot of conversations where he learned more and more about Jesus' unfair sacrifice for sinful people like Lawrence. What this story really illustrates, and so many of the stories in the book, is how people come to faith. And I think that's a, it's a first part of your book, and it's a, a major emphasis because it helps us better understand the role that we play and uh, to encourage us in the, the part that we might play in an unfolding story. There are four things that you write about that um, really illustrate the process of people coming to faith in Christ. Can you talk a bit about how that, uh, that happens? Sure. Uh, you know, there's so many different studies on evangelism that we do coming from our point of view, the, the evangelizers. And I, I just thought, maybe we need to hear this story from, mm-hmm. the, from the recipients. So, yeah, my four major conclusions, people tended to come to faith gradually, um, communally, variously, and supernaturally. I, I can explain, I mean, but uh, com- gradually. That, that People don't always come immediately. It's more of a gradual, incremental. For some people, it takes several years of moving gradually. Um, when I say people come to faith communally, what I mean is that they hear the gospel from a whole wide range of people. It's not just a one-on-one conversation with one particular person. Now, usually that, that person, there is one that is the major influence, but there's a whole host of other uh, input where they, they hear it from other people, and it's very important for them to hear and see the gospel 
in people's lives who are much older than them, who are different age, uh, different races and ethnicity than them, people who are married, people who are single, people who are old, young. I mean, they just needed to see it kind of working out in a lot of different people's lives. And then the variously, actually, I feel a little bit bad about this. If I do a good job right now in this interview, nobody's going to buy the book. Uh, this is terrible. So uh, uh, variously, you have to read the chapter. No, um, various, people just come from a lot of different starting points. Some people feel guilty and they need, they say, I must be forgiven. But, but not everybody does. Some people feel shame. Some people feel confused. Some people think, Life just doesn't make any sense. Does anybody have any way of making sense out of life? And there's just a lot of different pathways that eventually lead to the substitutionary atonement of Christ on the cross. And so we, we must never get away from mm-hmm. that, but we, we don't always have to start there. Um, and then the, the, the fourth conclusion about supernatural. I mean, there, there's just so many sort of crazy, improbable stories that are just so beautiful that um, I think it, it it encourages me to think, okay, this may look impossible from the surface, but there's a whole lot of other stuff going on underneath the surface. Yeah, yeah. You're right that people always come to faith supernaturally. It's not just a matter of my persuasion or my presence, but God is always at work behind the scenes in ways that we may not be initially aware uh, I, I think in answer to your concern a moment ago about, you know, we've gone through, we've blown the whole wad here with how people come to faith. I think the strength of the book really are the stories. It's one thing to see, okay, gradually, communally, but to hear the stories of people who reflect that process gives us confidence that, you know, maybe the role I'm playing is part of a larger picture, a larger story, and I'm playing a part of that. Maybe I'm that person who is the has the greatest influence, but there are others who are playing a role as well so that we don't get impatient and we don't get in, discouraged. Mm-hmm. Right. You know, you know, this this project originally was for a doctoral dissertation. Mm-hmm. So it was a very academic thing, and it was very technical. I, I recorded every single uh, interview. I had them transcribed. I, I looked for keywords. And, um, and and so when I went into it, I thought this is probably going to be kind of academic and dry. And I would come home from these interviews so excited. And I would tell my wife about them that when the whole project was all done and I, you know, I published it as a dissertation, but nobody should read that unless they're struggling <laughs> with insomnia. Um, I, I just thought let's let's I want to put these stories in in a book that people can read and and just be thrilled about the way the way I was in hearing the story. Absolutely. Now we're going to take a quick break, but we will resume our conversation momentarily. Again, we're talking with Randy Newman. The book is titled "Unlikely Converts: Improbable Stories of Faith and What They Teach Us About." evangelism. He writes that I'm convinced that hearing people's stories can help us proclaim the gospel more fruitfully. And that is what this book does for the reader. So you have to read it. The conversation will get your uh, your interest peaked, but you need to read the book. We'll be back in just a few moments. You're listening to the Georgine Rice Show podcast. It's aired on 93.9 KPDQ. We're back. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show, and I'm continuing my conversation with Randy Newman. His latest book, Unlikely Converts, filled with stories of people who came to faith in Christ, improbable stories, stories that will tug at your heartstrings, 
improbable stories of faith and what they teach us about evangelism. In fact, that is what the second half of the book is about. There's the power of story is a major focus of the book, but how Christians can proclaim the good news is what the second half of the book is about. And I want to talk to you about pre-evangelism in a moment, but you write that our world has shifted dramatically in the past decade. Our old strategies for evangelism need significant retooling. Even in the few years since uh, you wrote Questioning Evangelism in 2004, our audience has moved further away from what used to be valid starting points of conversation. Uh, And I think that has made um, a lot of believers who want to share their faith and have confidence in doing so a bit nervous because we're not sure what's the right approach today. The second half of your book really focuses on that. Yeah, and I, I think it's one of the most crucial things we, we've got to wrestle with today because mm-hmm. um, not all that long ago um, when you started a, a, an evangelistic conversation with a non-Christian, you already had a lot of common ground. I mean, if you, if you said to a non-Christian, would you like to know God personally, the God they thought of, even if they were not a believer, was probably the same God you were thinking of. Today, if you say, we'd like to know God personally, people would say, well, which God are you talking about? And how do you know this stuff? And what do you mean, know God personally? Isn't God an impersonal force like, I don't know, like the force in Star Wars? I mean, you know, you have to start further back with, well, when I say God, here's what I mean. And, uh, you know, the biblical basis for this was Paul's speech in Acts 17 on Mars Hill. I mean, you compare that to some other preaching that Paul did, And this is very different. And he started further back and said, let me tell you about this God. And so it was was much more of a basic theology lesson um, way before he ever got to anything about Jesus dying on the cross. In fact, he he, he didn't get to that to the very end of the message. And I, I think he was interrupted then by people who sneered and mocked him. But he spent most of his energy just trying to say, let me tell you about the God that that created everything. You quote Russell Moore, um, who awakened us to the reality that we can stop counting on the culture to do pre-evangelism for us. So our approach needs to include not just evangelism, but as uh, the the term is is coined, pre-evangelism. What does that mean, and how does that help us? As you've just described, how does that help us engage in meaningful conversation that ultimately? Uh, may lead us to the the spiritual conversation we really want to have. Well, you know, there, I, I think pre-evangelism has so many different varieties to it, but basically it's all of the kinds of conversations we can have so that when we do proclaim the gospel, it makes sense to people. I, I just think there's a whole lot of evangelistic presentations that we make that make no sense to people because they don't know what the categories that we're talking about. Which God are we talking about? Mm-hmm. What do you mean when you say sin? I mean, that, that, again, that used to be a concept that even non-Christians could acknowledge. Oh, yes, I know what sin is. I know that there's a standard. I know I don't live up to it. I don't know what to do about it, but, I don't, but at least I understand it. Today, it's, wait, wait, what are you talking about sin? Isn't that just culturally determined, or doesn't everybody make up their own morality? And so conversations about what do we mean by this component of the gospel? What do we mean by this component? What do we mean... When we say God loves you, I mean, those, those are three words that probably need some unpacking and some defining. And uh, so there's just a whole lot of that kind of 
previous conversation we need to have before we even get to the gospel or we get to the starting point of the gospel. Well, as I mentioned, the second half of your book focuses on how Christians can proclaim the good news. If people come to faith gradually, communally, variously, and supernaturally, as you explained in the last segment, how should we as Christians proclaim the good news, recognizing that the culture is no longer going to uh, agree with the the final point that we'd like to make, and we need to engage in that pre-evangelism. Well, again, I think we um, um, there's a lot that can happen with a lot of back-and-forth conversation so that it's much more of a two-way street. Um, there's a whole lot that we also need to do about thinking about just being um, very kind and gentle in our communication. That speaks volumes, and in our world today, there's, there's not a whole lot of kind and respectful conversation going on. But, but um, So I have a whole chapter on kindness, which you would think, boy, you, you really don't have to say that. Isn't, don't we just assume that? But in, in our world today, we need to think carefully. What really communicates kindness? Um, it's easy to win an argument and lose a person. Mm-hmm. And that, that, that's tragic, but, I, but I, I know I've done it, and it's terrible. And so I think we need to think through not just what we say, but how we say it. And um, I I also have a chapter on dealing with fear, because a whole lot of people want to know, how how do I overcome fear? And what what I tried to say in that chapter was, I I don't know how to overcome fear. Let's figure out how do we proclaim the gospel, even if we do feel fearful. How how do we proclaim the gospel fearfully? (laughs) Um, and, And there's something freeing about our confidence is not in us. Our confidence is in God and the power of his word and the power of the gospel message. Uh, I just love that in these chapters, you help us to address some of the um, some of the ways that people think in our culture today in sort of a whatever culture, as you put it in one instance, and where certainty is no longer certain. How do we navigate in those waters as we're uh, sharing our faith with people that we come in contact, even those who seem less likely to respond in the way that we hope and pray for. Yeah, and I think, uh, you know, the, the, there's something terrible if if we're just shaking our head and saying, what, what's going on? What's wrong with these people? They don't even, I don't know how they think. I, I think we can understand how people think. I mean, we just need to kind of just um, consider what it would be like if God hadn't uh, rescued us. And, and I think that's an important skill or discipline for us to think of, okay, how did I used to think, or how would I think today if the gospel hadn't invaded my life? And, and then um, to, to engage with people in a respectful way. Um, I think it's very important to remember that all people, no matter how we may disagree with them, that all people are created in the image of God, and all people have an ability to think at least well enough that we can appeal to their logic and their reason. And so I, I, I think respect and reason, kindness, these are, these are very often missing in evangelistic uh, encounters. Mm-hmm. Once again, we're talking with Randy Newman, his latest book, Unlikely Converts, Improbable Stories of Faith and What They Teach Us About Evangelism. The book is published by Craigle. Now, let me ask you about brainstorms. You include that at the end of the chapters to help Christians um, uh, sort of rehearse, prepare ourselves for evangelistic and pre-evangelistic conversations. Well, you know, I, I do a whole lot of evangelism training in churches and different ministries, and um, a lot of times people ask a question, and what they want to know is, you know, what's the right, 
the one right thing to say in this situation. They they say, well, suppose someone says this to you. What's what's the thing to say? And um, I, I don't think that's a good way to to go about it because it, it uh, I think it paralyzes us. So what I tried to do at the end of each chapter was give some brainstorms. So here here are some questions to try to come up with five or six or ten different things you could say in a specific situation. What are some possible things you could say? And I find that when people start brainstorming that way, they come up with a whole lot of ideas. And I think that that's more freeing instead of paralyzing. Yeah, I would agree. Once again, the book is titled Unlikely Converts, Improbable Stories of Faith and What They Teach Us About Evangelism, full of very encouraging stories of the process of coming to faith and also the process of sharing uh, with those who are in that um, on that journey. Randy Newman, thank you so much for joining us today. Oh, thank you for the privilege. Really appreciate it. By the way, the book is published by Craigle. News and traffic up next. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show podcast. It's aired on 93.9 KPDQ. Well, good afternoon and welcome to the second hour of The Georgine Rice Show, brought to you in part today by Zero Res. Later this hour, we're going to talk with Roy Swart. He is an MIT engineer and leader of Ambassadors Forum. They're holding their third annual Spotlights on You Apologetics Conference Friday and Saturday, November 15th and 16th at Cedar Mill Bible Church. Uh, we'll talk with him about that. This is a conference to which you are cordially invited. Also, if you... Um, happen to be a female and you're free on Saturday night, I would like to cordially invite you to join us for Girls' Night Out. Know your worth. You can join, um, well, me, my sisters uh, here at KPDQ and our sister station, The Fish, as we host uh, an evening where we focus on knowing your worth. It's coming up soon and tickets are going fast. That's Saturday this coming, November 9th, Northwest Christian Church, the Tigard Campus. Doors will open at 6. There will be appetizers, a photo booth, followed up by uplifting message with a dessert and coffee reception to follow. You can come, share a laugh, be encouraged, leave feeling refreshed because you are worth it. That cupcakes will be providing our dessert. Faith box and for the uh, for the king apparel will be providing opportunities for uh, purchasing uh, some of the swag that you might also want. Find out more and get your tickets today at kpdq.com or the KPDQ mobile app. Hope to see you there. Well, Donald Trump's tax returns have long been a point of contention between him and those who are bent on making uh, uh, taking him out. To be sure, he probably has some taxing questions he'd rather not publicly answer. I think most people would when it comes to taxes, which is why he um, reneged on his campaign promise to follow the traditional practice of presidential candidates by releasing them. But he also has every right to keep those returns concealed, except that that's not what another court has ruled. Well, the New York-based Second U.S. Circuit Court of Appeals ruled on Monday that President Trump's accounting firm must hand over eight years of corporate tax returns to the Manhattan District Attorney's Office, upholding a subpoena for the documents submitted by the DA earlier this year. Now, I don't know why eight years. He's, uh, I suppose, the year that he campaigned and maybe the years that he served. But nonetheless, eight years back, this is uh, what the Report says uh, Trump plans to petition the U.S. Supreme Court. Uh, NBC News notes that past Supreme Court rulings have upheld subpoenas directed at presidents. And this time the local prosecutors are seeking documents from the Trump organization and Trump's accountants, not directly from the president himself. Uh, we're warned about the danger Trump faces in New York because what prosecutors are looking for is evidence that Trump violated campaign finance law related to his alleged affairs and hush money payoffs uh, to Karen McDougal and Stormy Daniels. 
Daniels. Michael Cohen, Trump's former lawyer, was sentenced to three years in prison for violating campaign finance law with payments made to Daniels. The government of New York has politically targeted Trump, but he's providing the opening for that targeting. Well, speaking of taxes and New York, the president announced last week that he's leaving the Empire State to make his permanent residence in the Sunshine State instead. Florida has no income tax compared to New York's um, onerous high taxes. And Trump noted, despite the fact that I pay millions of dollars in city, state and local taxes every year, I've been treated very badly by the political leaders of both the city and the state. Few have been treated worse. I hated having to make this decision, but in the end, it will be best for all concerned, end quote. While he's not alone, New York loses more people each year than any other state, and its high taxes are the primary reason. According to a Bloomberg story in August, New Yorkers... uh, Uh, leads all U.S. metro areas as the largest net loser of 277 people moving every day, more than double the exodus of 132 just one year ago. The president is right that few have uh, been treated worse than he has, but that doesn't mean New York treats anyone all that well. When a dollar goes so so much further in Florida, why wouldn't a New Yorker move there, which the president has done, and apparently lots of other New Yorkers have done as well. Well, as I mentioned in the first hour of the program, the Trump administration has now formally notified the United Nations that it is withdrawing. The United States is withdrawing from the Paris Climate Agreement. The move comes as climate change drives more frequent and severe wildfires, hurricanes such as Hurricane Florence in 2018 and other hazards. It's being argued the Trump administration has formally notified the U.N. that the United States is, in fact, withdrawing a promise made many years ago, at least three from the Paris Climate Agreement. The withdrawal will be uh, complete this time next year after a one-year waiting period has elapsed. We will continue to work with our global partners to enhance resilience to the impacts of climate change and prepare for and respond to natural disasters, Secretary of State Mike Pompeo said in a statement on Monday. Nearly 200 countries signed on to the agreement in 2015 and made national pledges to reduce greenhouse gas emissions. By the way, the United States has already exceeded the agreement that it had made. Many countries don't even uh, make the attempt to reach theirs. Each country set its own goals and uh, Many wealthy countries, including the U.S., also agreed to help poorer countries pay for the costs associated with climate change. The U.S. US now is the only country to pull out of that pact. The United States is not cooperating with the rest of the world on dealing with climate change. Andrew Light, who's a former climate official in the State Department who helped develop the agreement, says the agreement was designed to uh, be easier to join than to leave. The U.S. even helped spearhead language that would hold countries accountable for the promises they made, in part to help guard against regime changes and other global political turmoil. It hasn't worked all that well, but it's in place. Indeed, in the years since the pact was created, many key international players, including Brazil, China, Japan, and India, have experienced economic or political upheaval, but none has withdrawn from the Paris Agreement as a result. They haven't reached their uh, goals, but they haven't withdrawn. President Trump originally announced his intention to withdraw from the deal in the summer of 2017, shortly after he took office. At the time, he says, as of today, the United States will cease all implementation of the agreement, including federal policies meant to reduce greenhouse gas emissions, as well as U.S. contributions to the International Climate Fund for poorer countries. These agreements are just only as good as the commitments from each country. Uh, The U.S. has pledged to reduce national greenhouse gas emissions by about a quarter by 2025 compared with 2005 levels. The country is not on track to reach that goal. And Republicans uh, who once criticized former President Barack Obama's handling of the U.S. debt 
quietly watched as the federal government debt hit $23 trillion for the first time in our nation's history. Treasury Department data show that the national debt rose past $23 trillion on Thursday, and almost $17 trillion out of this number is debt held by the public. The remaining $6 trillion comes from loans within government entities, according to The Hill. The national debt stood at $19.9 trillion when President Donald Trump took office after expanding by just under $9 trillion under the Obama administration. The debt has risen 16% since Trump took office, according to The Hill, hitting $22 trillion in February, Trump warned during his 2016 presidential campaign that the national debt was dangerous, blaming Obama for the mountain of debt that the former president left behind him. The total national debt has continued to grow under Trump in his administration. Republicans remained quiet over an issue they once championed and should be championing now. Well, the national debt was formerly a major Republican talking point against debt king Obama, so much so that Republicans shut the government down for 16 days in 2013. The Republican National Committee slammed Obama's oversight of the federal deficit in 2011, saying that the deficit held America's future in the balance and saying that Democrats failed to recognize that our mounting debt is one of the biggest threats to our ability to compete with the rest of the world's economies. What's changed? Well, the balance of power. As late as 2016, the GOP warned that Obama administration was on an unsustainable path toward crippling debt while raising taxes on middle class families who couldn't afford it. GOP Senator Mitch McConnell of Kentucky called the federal debt the nation's most serious long-term problem on CBS's Face the Nation in 2012, adding that Obama needs to become the adult in conversations on debt. Well, now Republicans aren't having, for the most part, that conversation at all. He went on to say, if we don't begin to deal with our debt and deficit in a serious way, we're not going to have any options. That's from former Republican House Speaker John Boehner in 2012, according to The Washington Post. I'm not going to apologize for leading the real issue here. Will the president lead? Well, I guess that same question uh, remains. Will the president lead? Again, national debt surpasses $23 trillion. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. We'll be back. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show podcast. It's aired on 93.9 KPDQ. We're back 21 minutes after 5 o'clock. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show, brought to you in part today by Liberty Coin and Currency. Also coming up in our next segment, we're going to talk with Roy Swart. He is an MIT engineer. He's also with Ambassadors Forum, and they're holding their third annual Spotlights on You Apologetics Conference. Friday and Saturday, November 15th and 16th, it's going to be held at Cedar Mill Bible Church. Great conference. We want to make sure you have all the important details. You can also check it out on the uh, website apologetic no spotlights on you.com so that'll be in our next segment well there are three cyber threats the u.s has to address to protect itself they say that by 2021 cyber criminals are projected to cost the global economy more than six trillion dollars annually that's up from three trillion dollars in 2015 also our long-term economic and national security has to account for and roll back a sustained campaign of cyber enabled economic warfare and global ransomware attacks cost individuals and businesses $5 billion in 2017. That's a 400% increase from the year before. Kind of makes you want to go back to low tech. Well, by almost every metric, the United States economy is running strong. Second quarter GDP growth was 2.1%. In July, 164,000 jobs were added and durable goods orders rose by 2%. Even our year-over-year core inflation rate is steady at 2%, hitting the Fed's target. 
Unfortunately, these are not the only statistics that matter when assessing the nation's economic security. Hostile foreign actors are increasingly aggressive in cyberspace, creating an economic environment that few understand and that even fewer are prepared for. Specifically, there are three trends that have to be turned around if the United States is going to thrive going forward. First, cybercrime is exploding. By 2021, they say cyber criminals are projected to cost the global economy $6 trillion annually, up from $3 trillion in 2015. Perhaps nowhere is this trend more pronounced than in the business sector. More than 43% of U.S. businesses suffered cybersecurity breaches in the last 12 months. That's according to the 2018 Cybersecurity Breaches Survey. And more than four in every five or 83% finance companies are hit by at least 50 cyber attacks every month. Now, these aren't just hit and run attacks. Once bad guys gain access to these networks, they remain undetected for, on average, between six to 12 months, stealing intellectual property, siphoning critical data, generally causing havoc. The average cost of a corporate cybersecurity breach now runs between $1.25 million and $8.919 million. No matter uh, uh, no wonder the professional cybersecurity industry is booming. By the end of 2019, total spending on cybersecurity is projected to reach more than $120 billion. That's an increase of nearly 13% over just last year. Companies like Microsoft, Google, Facebook, they each one spends around a billion dollars a year on securing their products and their offerings. But here's the rub. Few companies have the resources or technical talent to... Um, of these uh, titans, and yet smaller companies face uh, many of the same threats, including increasingly aggressive state actors. Which brings us to the second trend that has to be engaged, cyber-enabled economic warfare. Now, for decades, countries like China and Russia have pursued a deliberate strategy of using their foreign policy and intelligence communities to copy and steal American technologies. Now, these strategies are starting to produce meaningful results. Several foreign tech companies now legitimately rival U.S. tech leaders in both innovation and market capitalization. If left unaddressed, this could pose a challenge not only to our economic security, but also our greater national security. In a recent report, former Deputy Secretary of Defense Robert O'Work uh, captured the challenge well when he wrote, Chinese technological capabilities are growing as rapidly as its economic power. Indeed, China is keenly focused on blunting the U.S. military's technological superiority, even as it strives to achieve technological parity and eventually technological dominance. Put simply, our long-term economic and national security must account for and roll back a sustained campaign of cyber-enabled economic Warfare, But it's not just companies that are being attacked and it's not just intellectual property that's being stolen. The third cybersecurity trend that has to be turned around and is growing uh, the growing use of ransomware against um, enterprises and governments. Now, ransomware is any malicious software that limits or prevents someone from using his or her computer or accessing files. In 2017, this threat went to a whole new level in the wake of a 4.3% rise in ransomware variations, including uh, the WannaCry and NotPetya attacks that went global. At least 15% of businesses in the top 10 industry sectors were infected, and nearly a third of those affected were locked out of their systems for five or more days. Now, global ransomware attacks cost individuals and businesses $5 billion in 2017, a 400% increase from the year before. But now these attacks are taking an unexpected turn toward government. In 2019, more than 70 
Ransomware attacks were launched on state, local, and county governments in the U.S. One coordinated attack targeted 22 different Texas cities and towns. Several of these attacks led to catastrophic loss of data and equipment, and all of them temporarily crippled the provision of critical services. More than 60% of all U.S. ransomware attacks this year had government targets. Now, these three trends can't be ignored. Even more, they have to be rolled back if the U.S. wants to thrive in the future. Going forward, one strategic economic truth is certain, securing the nation's uh, Uh, The nation, rather, means securing economies. Securing economies means securing networks. And uh, it is a big job, and the challenge is growing along with it. Let's see, how much time do I have? have, Yeah, I think I can get into this. Well, in a lighted garage in one of San Francisco's busiest streets, a young man in baggy trousers, messy brown hair, pulled down his pants. No, it's not that kind of story. He'd been hiding two pairs of stolen jeans with the tag still on them. He handed them uh, to another man waiting nearby, took some money, pulled up his pants, and headed back to another store on Market Street, home to the city's high-end designers and big-chain retail shops. Well, the incident wasn't a one-off. These brazen... uh, Acts of petty theft and shoplifting are a dangerous and sadly all too often consequence of Proposition 47. It was a referendum passed five years ago that critics say effectively gives shoplifters and addicts the green light to commit crimes as long as the merchandise they steal or the drugs they take are less than $950 in value. Now, the decision to downgrade theft of property valued below the arbitrary figure from felony to misdemeanor, together with selective enforcement that focuses on more serious crimes, has resulted in thieves knowing they can brazenly shoplift and Merchants knowing that police will not respond to their complaints, according to critics. Well, Proposition 47 is seen by those critics as one of California's biggest blunders. Supported by the state uh, Democratic Party, championed by the American Civil Liberties Union, the referendum was passed by a wide margin in 2014. The idea behind it was to reduce certain nonviolent felonies to misdemeanors in order to free up resources for police officers and prosecutors to focus on violent offenders. Well, since Proposition 47 was passed, again, we're talking about the state of California, there's been an increase in theft across the, st- the uh, state. Cities like San Francisco have been organized, uh, seen organized crime rings turn shoplifting into a well-organized racket involving desperate thieves and unscrupulous black market resellers. And among the nation's 20 largest cities, San Francisco now has the highest rate of property crime, which includes theft, shoplifting and vandalism. Well, they believe San Francisco is stuck in a cycle, and until it's able to pull itself out, the problem will continue. Drug addicts, who are often homeless, need money for a fix, so they walk into a store, steal merchandise, sell it for half the value, and use that money uh, to buy more drugs. They add that the uh, mayor and elected officials have been spending too much time and money trying to coddle addicts and have done nothing to eliminate San Francisco's drug problem. Do you get the sense that the country is spiraling in a way that raises real question and doubt about its future. Hope you're praying, people. Up next, we'll talk with Roy Swart. He is an MIT engineer. The Ambassadors Forum is hosting the third annual Spotlights on You Apologetics Conference. All the details up next. You're listening to the Georgine Rice Show podcast. It's aired on 93.9 KPDQ. Good afternoon and welcome back. You're listening to the Georgine Rice Show. Now, let me ask you a question. If someone were to ask you a question about your faith, would you be ready to give an answer? Not just are you a Christian, that kind of question, but the hard questions that we'll eventually have to face. Well, my next guest is presenting an opportunity for those of us who might struggle with how to talk about our faith, how to respond to some of the challenging questions 
in a way that is honoring to Christ, is biblically sound, and is persuasive. Spotlight on You is going to teach you how to answer those kinds of questions, not only biblically, but in love and grace, so that more people can know who Christ is and what he did for us. To give an answer for the faith that we have. There are keynote speakers, there are breakout sessions, it's a uh, catered lunch that's going to be provided by the Christian Culinary Institute, great sponsors table. We're talking about the event that's coming up on the uh, Friday and Saturday, the 11th and 16th of November, the third annual Spotlight on You Apologetics Conference. My guest is Roy Swart. He is the leader of the Ambassadors Forum. It's a local Northwest Christian apologetics ministry that exists to make God known as he is. The ministry has been created uh, and presenting its own original content in the areas of science, scripture reliability, worldview, world religions, and current social topics. Uh, They also hold um, large conferences to bring the community around Portland together to discuss and engage in matters of truth in a relevant environment. My guest has earned a Bachelor of Science in Mechanical Engineering from MIT. He's worked in the R&D sector of the semiconductor industry for over 20 years, has published papers and presented at conferences, and has over a dozen patents. He's married with seven kids. They live here in the Portland metro area. And I'm delighted to invite Mr. Swart to tell us about the third annual Spotlights on You Apologetics Conference. Welcome. Thanks for having me, Georgine. You know, that word apologetics is very intimidating to some people. It's for those who have had seminary training or those who are in full-time ministry. Can you explain for those who may not be familiar with the word what apologetics are and why a conference of this type really is for all of us? That's a great question, Georgine. First of all, the, the word apologetics just is an English transliteration of the Greek word apologia, which is just means giving a defense. So if theology is studying our faith and evangelism is sharing our faith, apologetics is defending our faith. And so practically speaking, like you said, Georgine, all of us get hard questions, especially here in the Northwest where we've got this vibrant culture. People are straightforward. They're curious. They're passionate. They want to discuss things that are important in life. And so people are, Christians are always going to get questions about what they believe, how they act, if how they act is um, aligned with what they believe. And so really every Christian in Portland is going to be in a situation where they need to answer difficult questions. They need to bring the truth of the Bible and make it accessible to their friends, to their family who are also questioning And so this conference is a great way to equip and train every Christian in Portland uh, to have the confidence to defend their faith. Absolutely. In fact, it's it's well known that many people are reluctant to uh, to talk about their faith because they fear they're going to be asked a question they cannot answer. And uh, having a, uh, an explanation, having an answer, being able to, with confidence, explain the reason for the hope uh, that we have certainly is a central tenet of the Christian faith. But finding resource to help us do that can be a challenge. This conference is designed to help meet that need in the, in the life and the heart of the believer who wants to be faithful in sharing their faith, even in this culture. We, and we have some great speakers lined up, Georgine. Uh, one of them is Greg Kokel. He's had a, a ministry on the radio for decades, teaching and equipping people. He's written several books about how to just make apologetics really practical. 
We also have, this one's really exciting, we have Mary Jo Sharp, who actually grew up in Portland. Uh, she went and got a master's degree from Biola in apologetics, has been kind of all around the country. Um, she's, I think, an adjunct professor uh, at a university in Houston. She's in Portland, and she's going to be speaking to us at this conference as well. So we've got some great people lined up, uh, very practical, very helpful content every believer is going to be encouraged and strengthened. Oh, absolutely. In fact, our listeners can go to the website for more specific details on those breakout sessions and the the plenary speakers. Now, we're talking about a Friday evening and all day Saturday. Tell us a little bit about how the weekend will be structured. So we're going to have some main topics. And then um, on on, on Friday night, we'll have a couple of main topics we also have what we call an epizogetics follow-on for the youth. So one of the things that we found is that this battle is really, ha- is really raging with our kids in middle school and in high school and in college. And so what we've done is we've created an, an environment that's safe, that's fun. We order you know, a couple of dozen pizzas and we just hang out together the kids can text questions in, they can ask questions, and it's just a time to interact with the people who are presenting, ask their questions, and we encourage people. A lot of people think that Christianity is a place for no doubt. For, for you, you have to believe what you believe, you have to be certain of it, and what we really try and encourage, especially the kids, it's okay to have questions. Yes. Everybody has doubts. It's good to uh, bring those questions and those doubts out in the open and talk about them. So we'll have that at, on, on Friday night, the Epizogetics, and then Saturday we'll have a couple of big talks again throughout the day and several breakout sessions in smaller venues where it really can get some good um, interaction with the speakers. I noted in your bio, uh, it says that he thinks, referring to you, that anything worth believing in should be able to stand up to any question or doubt and encourage everyone uh, to put the Bible to the test and go where the data leads. Of course, that means you have to start by actually reading the Bible. But this is an opportunity where questions are welcome. And I think it builds our confidence when we see, yes, there are answers. There are answers that even I can articulate, even if I don't have a seminary degree or I didn't go to Bible college, that I can speak about my faith with confidence. Now, tell us a little bit about some of the topics that are going to be covered, uh, particularly on Saturday during the breakout sessions. So some of the breakout sessions, uh, we have talks on science and the Bible. We have talks on our legal defense. We have talks on uh, navigating public schools. So how do you have these conversations in a public school? What are your rights? We have talks on homelessness. We have talks on um, just a whole bunch of different topics, really a lot of scriptural reliability, anything that you would probably encounter in a daily conversation um, we're going to address on Saturday. I really want to challenge our listeners. If you have a desire to speak openly and freely about your faith, if you want to have confidence in answering questions, we may not have all of the answers, but to equip ourselves to to meet some of the challenges that we know are part of uh, the culture here in the Portland metro area, this is a conference that will help equip you to do just that. And again, I, I appreciate, for example, one of the subjects is a Christian's response to same-sex attraction, God's power to redeem and transform. What is a biblical response? How do I address those who come with a different view on the subject? 
subject to present a biblical worldview. Homelessness is another issue that you mentioned a moment ago that is uh, very significant in our community. Dallas Lang is going to, from the Portland Rescue Mission, is going to be talking about why the church doesn't do more about homelessness. Again, these are issues where the rubber meets the road, where real conversations are taking place in our community. Now, this is a, a ministry of uh, the organization, the Ambassadors Forum, and you all have presented opportunities for the body of Christ here uh, to come together and to um, consider the apologetics, the, the answers and responses to questions that are likely to arise. Can you tell us a little bit about the Ambassadors Forum and what motivates you all to provide this kind of uh, opportunity? Yeah, it's, it's interesting. The backstory about our forum, Georgine, is several of us parents were getting questions from our own kids that we had a tough time answering. And we said, boy, you know, wouldn't it be great if we could get together once a week and talk and share and say, here's a question I got this week. Here's where I found an answer in the Bible. Here's, does anybody else have any, um, any input or, or any suggestions on how to, how to strengthen this um, communication? And so it just started real small. We started with a, a youth group presentation here and a small group presentation there. And what we found is people, especially in the Portland area, this is on people's minds yes. all the time. And so it, it just grew and grew. We had a, a conference. We had uh, over 300 people at our first conference. We we did almost no marketing, no advertising. It was just word of mouth. And we, we, we've found that we've really hit a hot topic uh, for people in this area. And so we've just continued to add to our talks and, and go back to the Bible and strengthen our, our positions and get better at communicating. And we really feel like we're really meeting the need of the people in this area. Oh, absolutely. I am so grateful for the work that you are doing. And again, for listeners who are interested in more information, you can go to the website spotlightsonyou.com slash 2019. Again, spotlightsonyou.com 2019. Now, tell our listeners who are interested in coming what they need to do in order to take part. So if you go to the website, right there on the, on the front page, it just says um, register now. You click that, there will be a, a place where you can enter in your information, your, um, how many kids, how many adults. Again, this is this is great for adults. It's great for grandparents, parents. It's great for college age, teenagers, uh, people in middle school. So bring bring your kids with you. I, they'll be encouraged and enlightened a- along the way. So go to the website, spotlightsonyou.com. Click on Register Now and just fill in your information. Well, Roy Swart, thank you and the Ambassadors Forum for making this opportunity available to the Portland metro area. And I look forward to future conversations with you just in general on apologetics. So uh, maybe we can make that happen sooner than later. All right. Sounds great, Georgine. I've always loved your show and, and your tagline of critical thinking for critical time. I think is just so appropriate. I, I Every single day when I go to work, I think about analytical, logical reasoning, and it's just a fantastic resource that you have on the radio uh, every day for for people who want to think through their faith and not just follow a blind faith. Um, So I I really appreciate your show. Appreciate your encouragement. Thank you so much. Bye-bye. Again, Ron Swart, he's with the Ambassadors Forum, this event coming up on the... uh, 
15th and 16th. Would love to see you be a part of it. And again, you can go to the website spotlightsonyou.com. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. We'll be back in a moment to wrap things up. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show podcast. It's aired on 93.9 KPDQ. We're back. You're listening to the last segment of The Georgine Rice Show on this Tuesday afternoon. As you know, Election Day is today, and uh, we are about one year away from national elections in which we'll have an opportunity to cast ballots for who the next president of the United States will be. Senators, representatives in Washington, in Olympia, in Salem. And it is a time when uh, politics is at the fore. We hear a lot of uh, rhetoric from those who are seeking our attention and our support Uh, And it can be very disheartening to hear the kind of rhetoric that characterizes these kind of uh, contests these days. Well, there is an organization, it's called Golden Rule 2020, in which churches are praying for civility in the presidential election in particular. It consists of a theologically diverse group of Christians who are coming together to pray for political civility as the United States is one year away from the next presidential election. Now, one would probably need to broaden that to not only reflect the election for the president of the United States, but the events that are taking place in Washington related to that office as it's currently occupied. Again, it's known as Golden Rule 2020, a call for dignity and respect in politics. The prayer campaign will begin on Sunday, as it marks exactly one year before the election. Now, Golden Rule 2020 was part of the Revive Civility Project, which is overseen by the University of Arizona's National Institute for Civil Discourse. Uh, Theo Brown, director of NICD's faith-based programs, told the Christian Post that this was the first time they used the theme of the Golden Rule for their programs. The idea to use the Golden Rules is is a way to promote civility. It emerged from a meeting that they had back in May in Washington, D.C., with representatives of about a dozen Christian denominations and other national church organizations. Now, Mr. Uh, Brown, who uh, Theo Brown, who is the director of the faith-based programs organization, said that He believed faith communities have a huge role to play in reviving civility in the United States because of their basic beliefs about humanity. All Christian denominations teach that each individual person, regardless of their political views, is someone created in the image of God. Therefore, each person is worthy of being treated with dignity and respect even if you have strong disagreements. Because faith communities have these ethical values, it's easier to make the case to them that civility matters and that it's something that uh, uh, we should pay attention to. The goal of Golden Rule 2020 is to remind Christians that our faith has something to say about how we talk to each other and that these insights are relevant to our political discussions, particularly in difficult times like these. Well, denominations involved in Golden Rule 2020 involve the Episcopal Church, the National Association of Evangelicals, the Evangelical Lutheran Church in America, the United States Conference of Catholic Bishops, Department of Justice, Peace and Human Development, and Presbyterian Church USA, among others. Reverend Jimmy Hawkins, who's the director of the Presbyterian Church USA Office of Public Witness, told Christian Post that he became involved in Golden Rule 2020 at the invite of Mr. Brown, a fellow Presbyterian. In the United States, he says, political life 
Uh, There is a lack of civility, which is broadly evident throughout the political discourse of the country. It dates back further than the concerns over the present leadership in the White House. He points out, as I travel around the country, many Presbyterians voice concern over the lack of civility. Pastors share desiring to have tools instructing on how we can engage in conversations about controversial issues in the life of the congregation. Well, as part of their involvement in Golden Rule 2020, the Presbyterian Church USA is going to direct their pastors to the prayer campaign's resources to help with advancing civility. He says American churches are governed by a set of values which go beyond political positions. One would certainly hope we acknowledge that. We are a community gathered in the name of a Savior. Christ Jesus, whose commands um, that our first and foremost loyalty is to him and nothing else comes even close, not political affiliation, not our concern about the future of the country and uh, any other concern one might squeeze in between. Our political identity is important, but not our priority in our daily walk of faith. We are to treat each other, each person with respect, even love. We are to pray for those who persecute us, pray for those with whom we strongly disagree. Now, that can be a challenge. It's admirable to read about it in Scripture. It's another thing to actually apply it to daily life when we're talking about people we don't care for, people who oppose us or people we oppose. Uh, Gallen Carey, who is with the National Association of Evangelicals, the vice president of government relations, says that his organization is pleased to be part of this effort. We commit to uh, modeling civility in the ways we discuss issues and in how we interact with leaders, including those with whom we disagree. We have informed and encouraged our members to participate and have pointed them to resources they can Uh, use, including our own, for the health of the nation, which includes a strong call to civility. He hopes that all people, regardless of political affiliation or which candidates they support, will exercise civility as they engage in today's challenging issues. We need to remember that every human being is made in God's image and should be treated with dignity and respect, he concluded. I have never seen in the course of my years um, as an adult paying attention to politics the lack of civility at the level that we're seeing it today, the language that is now used used and considered acceptable from the top all the way down. I'm I'm primarily referring to what's happening in Washington is uh, utterly shocking. And uh, I guess what's being called for here is a, a grassroots effort to change the discourse, to change the tenor of it all, and to demand that of our leaders as well. So if you would like to be a part of this um, prayer for civility in the presidential election in particular, but all of the elections underneath, uh, you can look for Golden Rule 2020. The National Association of Evangelicals has resources as well. And I suppose it begins in our own hearts how we um, conduct ourselves with those uh, with whom we disagree or those who disagree with us, how we respond and treat others. It matters, particularly if we uh, call ourselves followers of Jesus. So I wanted to mention that to you. Tomorrow on the program, I'm looking forward to a conversation with Greg Jantz. His resource, Soul Care, offers prayers, scriptures, and spiritual practices for when you need hope the most. It really is a great resource to uh, to come to. What scriptures are going to bring encouragement to me or someone uh, that I'm trying to encourage and bless. Soul Care is the title of the book, and it's part of a, a collection of resources. In fact, we had him on a few weeks ago to talk about another of his resources, but uh, this very small book is packed full of great resources, prayers, scriptures, and spiritual practices for when you need hope the most. And then on Thursday, we we'll, uh, look forward to a conversation with Elizabeth Bra. She is the author of God's Spies, the Stasi's Cold War Espionage Campaign, 
inside the church. It uh, is uh, something of a cautionary tale and a warning uh, to the church in the 21st century as we look at uh, the Cold War and how the campaign inside the church undermine the primary function and role of the body of Christ uh, during this Cold War period. So we're looking forward to a conversation with Elizabeth Bra on that. Uh, that's coming up on Thursday. And then on Friday, we will take a look at the lighter side of the news. So we'll certainly cover some of the top headlines, but we'll also focus on things of lesser importance, although, you know, you might get a an important issue in there as well. I think we focused on washing hands last week and I attended a, I visited a friend's church over the weekend. I feel like it's home to me too, but, and uh, someone approached me and said that he really appreciated that that emphasis and uh, the the focus on just being courteous uh, to one another. Maybe that's a good place to start, you know, in kindergarten where we're taught to wash our hands and not to be a pushy pig, which is one of the phrases I remember from kindergarten at Woodstock Elementary. All right. Once again, tomorrow, Greg Jantz will be my guest. Soul care, prayers, scriptures, and spiritual practices for when you need hope the most. I want to thank James Blind for producing today's program, Clark Hilton for engineering, and thank you for making the Georgine Rice Show part of your day. Keep in mind, the uh, conference is coming up on Friday and Saturday night, the 15th and 16th of November. Uh, That is the Spotlights on You Apologetics Conference. And you can find out more at the um, uh, website Spotlights on You, and that's uh, plural, Spotlights, possessive actually, on You um, uh, Conference. So check that out. Have a good night. Thanks for listening to the Georgine Rice Show podcast. If you'd like to download a podcast of the show or would like more information on today's guests, please visit the show at kpdq.com or on Facebook. Follow the show on Twitter at G. Rice Show and like us on Facebook. And join us live every weekday at 4 for more critical thinking for critical times on 93.9 KPDQ.